0: I, I would say um, what interests me is I think the posture that Christians take with respect to secularity and secularism depends a lot on your diagnosis of what it is. All right, does that sound? And, and I would say, I, I grant that I might be something of a minority report, but my, my interest is coming up with a diagnosis of what it means to live in a secular age that yields a posture on behalf of the Christian community that is not defensive and reactionary, but in sense, in in, in other words, a a posture in which we see a, a secular age less as a threat to defend ourselves from and more as an opening and an opportunity and a challenge both for the renewal of Christianity, but also for what our witness looks like. And in that sense, uh, um, I think this is where uh, uh, I think the diagnosis matters a lot. What what does it mean to live in a secular age? That's the question I want to think about today. What does it mean to say that we live in a secular age? I don't want to deny that we do. I absolutely think we do. Something's changed. We we live, and and we're going to call it a secular age. But I think What that means can be understood very differently, and I think there are some very flat-footed takes on that, that actually aren't helpful. And I think that something like Charles Taylor's take, of which I'm, I'm just like the dinghy floating in the wake of his giant uh, uh, intellect and project, and I'm just here to sort of uh, uh, give you sort of breadcrumbs uh, that are very much dependent on Taylor, but hopefully with maybe a little bit of uh, um, uh, originality to it. So, what does it mean that we live in a secular age? I would say, first of all, it is not it does not mean, it is not synonymous with living in a godless age. That is, I think the first thing that we have to do is realize that a secular age is not reducible to an a-religious age. Uh, it is not reducible to disbelief. Uh, instead, there's something else that's going on in our secular age. Now, does, does uh, um, the, the realities and shifts that give us a late modern secular age make disbelief possible and more prevalent? Yes. But it's not the synonym. It, it doesn't vanquish belief. And by the end, I'm going to show why I actually think it creates its own explosion of belief. Uh, That we need, then that's part of what we have to grapple with. So, what interests me is, um, uh, I actually think that we need an account of the secular that refuses the the secularization thesis. Okay, so if you were thinking about these matters in the '60s or '70s or '80s. Uh, um, We were doing crazy things in the 80s, but what all the things, the the way that we prior, previously would have thought about this was under the rubric of the secularization thesis, which was mostly a sociological thesis, which suggested that as late modern cultures advanced in technological prowess, liberal democratic access, Uh, um, capitalist consumption Uh, as all of these markers of modernity increased globalized and and became more and more prevalent as those markers of modernity increased religious belief and participation would decrease so that we would so what was projected was less and less religious belief The problem with the secularization thesis is it actually didn't work. It didn't come true. And in fact, uh, um, we spent so much time in the 2000s talking about the return of religion around the world. And even in, I mean, imagine having a conversation about politics today that didn't involve religion. It's actually very, very difficult to do. If you want to make sense of American politics, you actually can't do it without talking about religion. So apparently we are not the secularized space that the secularization thesis anticipated. So uh, um, unfortunately, however, most people who have gotten to define the secular have mostly been hangers-on to something like that secularization thesis, or they have been religious folks who are reacting to that secularization thesis and actually end up buying the secularization thesis in their very retrenchment and reaction to it. Does that make sense? So that too many Christian responses to the secular have actually been reactionary mirrors of a secularization thesis. That's why I want us to break out of it. And here's, here's the way I want to walk into it. Um, I want us to look around. It, it's, it's very, very easy to write Jeremiads and screeds and rants about how we're all going to hell in a handbasket because of godlessness. It, it, it's, it's like low-hanging fruit. You can do that all day long. I'm interested in um, signs, signals, and phenomena that suggest that actually the world is much more complicated and that in fact they are phenomena that can't be explained by the godlessness narrative. So l- let me give you a couple of examples. Um, my, my, I think my favorite encapsulation of what I think defines a secular age comes from a British novelist named Julian Barnes, who unfortunately, I still think we don't read very much on this side of the pond. Um, Barnes is, so what you have to realize is Julian Barnes is kind of the poster child of British secularization, right? So he's probably in his 70s, I'm going to guess, about 70s, like like a Martin Amos contemporary. And uh, um, he is, in a sense, he is the picture of the person who grew up in a post-Christian Britain in that he never went to church, has had no religious experience whatsoever, has absolutely zero stake in religious identity and has not been formed in a religious way at all. And yet, in 2008, he published a really, really remarkable memoir called Nothing to be Frightened Of. And there's a line that occurs in that memoir, I think about three times, where he says simply this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That, to me, is the most succinct encapsulation of the messy complexity of what a secular age is. So... Does he not believe in God? Sure. In a way, that's almost the least interesting part of that claim, though, right? I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And what interests me are all the kinds of phenomena that we still bump into in our supposedly secular age that manifest that kind of malaise and ambivalence and even longing, rumbling around under the disbelief. Uh, In fact, what's interesting about... um, Barnes is—he's a passionate devotee of the arts. In fact, his most recent nonfiction collection is all on painting, uh, and he's also—he uh, uh, um, uh, like crazy smart about music, classical music. Um, what in nothing to be frightened of. He he has this point where he says, you know, uh, um, I realize that the art that I am most passionate about has been generated by people who believe. That Jesus Christ died and rose again. Do you know what I mean so? And whether it's whether it's listening to Bach's or uh, Saint Matthew's Passion, or whether it's it's going to you know see Titian paintings in Northern Italy. And at one point he says, you know, I'm I'm sometimes haunted when I'm in front of these works of art or when I'm listening to these works of art by this question: What if I believed it were true? Right? And he realizes that, in fact, the beauty that, was, that captivates him has been generated by a people who believed it was true. And so it creates this situation of haunting, in a sense. Uh, um, if, if, if Julian Barnes is a doubter, one of the things you start to realize is that sometimes doubters doubt their doubt. And in that sense, the doubter who doubts his doubt is actually haunted by the possibility of faith. That's, I think, the kind of space that we inhabit. I'll give you, give you one other example of the phenomenon. You can, By the way, you can also do this in popular music, uh, but if I do, now I'm gonna show how old I am, what a dad I am, if I start citing musical examples, because like it's all gonna be the postal service and death cab for cutie, all right? <laughs> uh, so I won't, because I actually think, you know, I, equally, Kanye and Chance the Rapper would be actually interesting examples of sort of hauntings of the transcendent in contemporary uh, cultural music. I'll give you uh, one more example of, again, what I'm, what I'm looking at are just little case studies that complicate the standard secularization narrative. The other is um, Steve Jobs. Okay, so I I used to be this huge evangelist for Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. And really, if you haven't read it, you should absolutely read it. It's heartbreaking and unbelievable at the same time. Jobs was an incredibly tortured soul, I think. Uh, You might remember he died at 54, mostly because of hubris, thinking that he could control his cancer with his diet, which goes back to a long legacy in his life of basically thinking that he's the master of his fate. So lots of heartbreak and lots of sadness, and then also, and also he's a total jerk, total jerk as a boss, and brings out the best in everyone around him. It's, a, it's just, as an Augustinian, I read this and think this is, this is why I'm a Calvinist, do you know what I mean? Like the, the messiness of people's uh, uh, motivations and so on. But... Jobs, so think of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is like this poster child of almost everything that we love and idolize today, right? Think of it. I mean, uh, uh, um, on the one hand, he's in the heart of Silicon Valley. He's at the forefront avant-garde of technological advancement. He's also a real uh, passionate devotee of the arts as well. So that all of us, all of us love kind of Apple, all of us who have the, you know, aesthetic sensibilities to <laughs> hate PCs. Uh, uh, um, our, what we love is actually the kind of Bauhaus simplicity of all of this, right? The, the minimalism is its beauty. So he's, he's passionate about, uh, about uh, beauty and art and design. And he's also super successful capitalist. It's <laughs> you know I mean? like unbelievable. Uh, uh, so in a way, he almost embodies everything that the culture values, everything that a secular culture values. But here's the thing. He does not fit the secularizing narrative. I'll give you one example. Late in his life, Isaacson is having a conversation about him. This is when he knows he's going to die. Here's the, here's the snippet of the conversation. One sunny afternoon when he wasn't feeling well, Jobs sat in the garden behind his house and reflected on death. He talked about his experiences in India almost four decades earlier, his study of Buddhism, his views on reincarnation and spiritual transcendence, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God, he said. Now, by the way, if you are ever in San Francisco and somebody says, I'm 50-50 on believing in God, take that bet. In in other words, that's a pretty remarkable thing to meet somebody in the Bay Area who says, yeah, I'm like 50% open. I mean, you, could, you can sit here and judge that and say, you know, you know from, from, from uh, uh, the safety and, and, and you know, uh, uh, robust faith of our, of our location right here, you can say, oh, see how wishy-washy the world is. He doesn't even know whether he believes or not. L- listen to the other side. He is 50% open <laughs> to considering this, right? In fact, he goes on, he says, for most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. He admitted that as he faced death, he might be overestimating the odds out of a desire to believe in an afterlife. I like to think that something survives after you die, he said. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. He's longing for immortality. He fell silent for a long time. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off sli- switch. Click, and you're gone. And then he paused again, and he smiled slightly. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. <laughs> these haunted, right? I don't want an on-off. That this, is, this is, you know, the post-Steve Jobs. We have all these switches and buttons and things. It's, it's heinous. It's a heretical. Uh, um, but back in the day, it was like smooth clean, no on-off switches because there's this hope that maybe I don't get turned off, right? Maybe I endure. That's not, I'm not saying he's a closet Christian. I'm not, I'm not positive. What I'm saying though is somebody who's in the heart that embodies almost everything that we idolize in our secular age is 50-50 on believing in God and wants to live forever. Is that a threat or is that an opening and an opportunity? We could, we could think about lots more examples. Let me give you the snapshot of Charles Taylor's, what I'm going to call Taylor's non-secularist account of the secular. Okay, so it's it's non-secularist in the sense that it is not this secularizing godlessness narrative about triumph of universal rationality, blah, blah, blah. It, is, it recognizes that something has changed, but it is a non-secularist account of the secular. Um, I'll I'll highlight four features of it, but let's, let's say the opening question for Taylor is something like this. How is it that in the West, and we can talk about this, by the way, he does qualify what he's doing as pertinent to the particular histories of Western societies. He says, how is it that in the West, we went from an age in 1500 where it was virtually impossible to not believe in God, to an age in 2000 in which, especially in elite sectors of cultural influence, it's virtually impossible to believe in God. Can you feel the difference between those two things? It's not necessarily a predictor of whether or not people believed in God, it's just talking about the default conditions of believability. Right? So that if you're, it's 1500 in Paris, it doesn't mean that there are no atheists around, it just means that it is almost unimaginable as the default that somebody could imagine not believing in God, okay? In contrast, if you're at NYU in 2000 in most of those elite spaces, although, okay, let's come back to NYU. I'll, I'm gonna run with this story, but then I wanna come back to NYU. If you're at NYU, uh, uh, or, or, or let's say Columbia, it, yeah, that's also, you're at NYU in, the, in, in 2000 and you, you are sort of running kind of these elite centers of cult- culture, you can basically assume if you're in a room this size that nobody believes in God, right? What changed? Taylor's question is what changed? Now that answer is 900 pages long and it involves a long historical genealogy that we do not have time to do today. Um, I want to try to encapsulate the, the summary or the, the fallout of that. The first is this. What does it mean to live in a secular age? Secularity is not synonymous with unbelief. Secularity is a feature of the contestability of belief. Does that make sense? In other words, don't, when you hear the word secular or secularity, don't think disbelief or unbelief. Think the contestability of belief. So what, well, what, do we, what does that mean? You, you could, uh, some of you might know Peter Berger's stuff. You could talk about this in terms of what he called plausibility conditions. What is, what is sort of believable given the water that we swim in, that we take for granted as the default? Uh, um, what has shifted over those five year, 500 years is, the, is nobody's belief is taken to be axiomatic universally, right? There is no overarching, <laughs> governing, axiomatic default belief so that we assume everybody believes what we believe. Now, that, I, I say overarching because on the one hand, pro, there are going to be microclimates where we still do that. Does that make sense? In other words, so, so Manhattan would be one where actually you can probably, for the most part, operate with the assumption that there's a default belief. But maybe, m- maybe also Nashville has its own too. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's, there's microclimates where this is still true, but overall in a society, there is not one belief that can be taken to be the default and axiomatic. All beliefs are contested and contestable. We, I think we know this in very, very practical, uh, um, uh, existential ways. Just by like, if you, if you live on a street outside of some sort of religious enclave, you live on a street with people who believe radically and fundamentally different things than you do. So, so Taylor says, the reality of a secular age is as simple as living on a street with people who don't believe what you do. And, and not killing one another. Do you know what I mean? That, that's that's the, the, in fact, it, it generates what he also calls a dynamic that he calls the fragilization of belief. Because one of the things that happens, and this is, you experience this individually, and then you also spirit, experience it as microcultures. As you emerge into a space where you realize, think, think of being uh, um, a child who has been educated in Christian institutions, and then you get to UNC. And all of a sudden, you put your head up, and you look around, you're like, whoa. There's people here, we didn't do that at home. We didn't talk like that. We didn't say that. We didn't believe that at home, right? That, that emergence into a space where you now encounter the diversity of belief generates its own kind of fragilization because now you go through an existential experience of wondering, okay, why do I believe what I believe and you know, what's the, what's the difference? Uh, uh, the, the, what should happen, however, though, is actually everybody should experience that. Everybody should experience that. So the contestability of belief generates a, um, a, a situation of this uh, a plurality that we experience in very practical existential ways. Second feature of, of a secular age, how, how long should I talk? 35? We have, we have 37 more minutes. Okay, I'm going to give you 10 more minutes, all right? And then we can, because there's lots to talk about second feature so first contestability of belief second what I'm uh, uh, um, what Taylor calls uh, um, the emergence of uh, uh, the imminent frame the imminent frame so okay how do it make sense of this um, have you ever heard about heard people talk about modernity in terms of disenchantment the disenchantment of the world so think of what Taylor Taylor said. One of the features of living in a late modern secular age is that we now all functionally and practically, without realizing it, without thinking about it, inhabit a kind of space that is framed by this, what he's calling this immanent, M-A, immanent frame where in effect we have disenchanted the world we have naturalized our our immersion in in reality so that in effect what happens is we have lopped off the significance of transcendence and we have lopped off the significance of eternity right so think of disenchantment as practically and functionally inhabiting the world in such a way as if there is no transcendence and as if there is no eternity That's what it means to inhabit an imminent frame. Now, you're all sitting there and thinking, well, I haven't done that. Of course, I I understand that. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean that you don't swim in a world that functionally has, and also don't underestimate the extent to which your congregation still functionally accept that as the rules of the game. I, I would say the most potent engine, probably, of disenchantment is consumerism. So the, so the engine of disenchantment, for example, is not, not primarily or most significantly the op-ed page of the New York Times. The most significant engine of disenchantment is Walmart, which just keeps promising us that happiness is gonna be found in stuff, right? That effectively makes us live as if we inhabit this imminent frame. And so then what happens is, within that imminent frame, however, Taylor says, What what becomes what happens now? This remember this is a long historical story. What emerges is the possibility. Well, okay, wait. Let me pause for a sec. Early in this shift, it was it was almost impossible to imagine a meaningful life or a significant life, if you weren't attuned to transcendence and eternity. Like how how could you possibly imagine a meaningful life? if it didn't refer to transcendence and eternity. So what Taylor thinks then is actually the great cultural accomplishment, great, great just in like overwhelming significant, not necessarily affirming it. What, what is the remarkable cultural accomplishment of late modern secularity is the emergence now within the imminent frame for a vision of life, an, a social imaginary, if you will, that imagines a life that could be fulfilling, meaningful, and significant without reference to transcendence and without reference to eternity. And he calls that now, this new live option in secularity, exclusive humanism. Exclusive humanism. Exclusive in the sense that it excludes transcendence and eternity. Humanism insofar as it's still actually invested in a kind of human project it's still looking for meaning and significance and 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 enchantment even a kind of quasi enchantment in a way but now it's trying to do it under the conditions of the imminent frame now there's a very very fascinating story that I wish this is a oral footnote to go read but uh, um, there's a fascinating story about which by which Taylor demonstrates, I think, that actually the emergence of exclusive humanism was impossible if the West hadn't already come through Christianity. So there's, there's very, very interesting debts that secularity has to Christianity, okay? So imminent, uh, uh, contestability, imminent frame. Within that imminent frame now, the emergence of the possibility of exclusive humanism. But then here's a fourth feature what he calls the cross-pressured reality of life within that imminent frame. Now, what does he mean by that? And this is where, you have to remember, Taylor is a Christian, but he's, he's trying to narrate an account of this in which he's not like fronting that until the very end of the book, where he then puts on the table, he thinks he, he, he has a different account because of his own Christian faith, okay? What, what Taylor says happens is, when we all inhabit this imminent frame, because of the contestability of belief, but also because, and effectively what Taylor says, because I think there's still transcendence and eternity. We've made up the world as if there isn't, but in a way, what Taylor says is, one of the things that might explain why we keep trying out options that we do is because maybe somebody's knocking, (laughs) right? Or at one point, he uses this great metaphor. He says, you know, we, we've, we've basically set up a society in which we're trying to live out this exclusive humanism without reference to transcendence or eternity. And it's like, uh, um, sometimes you drive from the city out into the country and you're listening to your radio station, then you lose it. And then all of a sudden, you, so you don't have the radio station for a long time. And then all of a sudden, you just hit this one pocket out in the valley and the station comes back on and then you remember, and it's like this sort of like, whoa, whoa, what's it's like you're catching signals that you thought you had lost. Uh, uh, Taylor says, that partly explains now this phenomenon of cross-pressure. Within the imminent frame, given the contestability of belief, everyone is cross-pressured in the sense that they experience the pull and push and tug and stretching of the rival stories that lead them to doubt, okay? So cross-pressure is this existential experience of living into the contestability of our faith. Now, how is that experience? Well, let's start with how it's experienced by religious communities. The way it's experienced by religious communities is it makes doubt an ever-present reality, okay? Now, Here's, so I'm going to, I, I don't know what you all think about this, but uh, um, I, I'm, I'm going to make this as a pastoral plea. Doubt is not an enemy of faith. It needs to be understood as a kind of companion. Yeah, in this sense, Kierkegaard says, doubt did not come into the world until there was faith. <laughs> um, doubt isn't disbelief. Doubt is haunting by the rivals. And I think one of the things that has worried me about North American evangelicalism is that we have effectively demonized doubt as sin and and uh, young people think we have something to hide. If we don't make space, to realize the cross pressured place is to, is to say, uh, uh, unless you all are just much, 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 much better Christians than I am, I have a hard time imagining that you inhabit the world every day in such a way that you're never haunted. Uh, The reason I say that with some confidence is the diaries of Mother Teresa were published and we realized that she struggled with incredible dark nights of the soul in doubt. So I'm thinking, Mother Teresa's grappling with this. We, We are all Thomas now, okay? We are all Thomas. And what Jesus does is he doesn't demonize Thomas, he gives him the wound, right? So existentially, I think one pastoral implication of this is to realize that for believers who inhabit this cross pressured space of a ex- secular age, doubt is going to be a common existential reality. And I think we pastorally Im- Uh, not embrace it, but we pastorally minister to and through the midst of it, it's exactly why we need a community of faith. There are gonna be days I need you to believe for me, okay? So that's one pastoral implication. But here's the other, and this is the posture implication. If cross-pressure means that the believer is tempted to doubt, but everybody is cross-pressured, it also means the unbeliever is haunted by faith, right? That in fact, the unbeliever can't just write off and insulate herself from these kind of wake-up calls of mortality, or these wake-up calls of transcendence, or this FM signal that comes back and grabs hold of you. And that's exactly why I think our posture vis-a-vis unbelief, it has to be one in which... You leave, opening, you leave an opening for them to express their doubt, which is the consideration of faith, right? That's why cross-pressure is actually an opportunity. Finally, last feature, I'll close with this, is um, Taylor says, because of this cross-pressure and the contestability of belief, you know, it's almost like this kind of pressure cooker that happens, and the result is not just increasing disbelief, the result is what he calls a nova effect of an explosion of different ways of believing, right? So you get, so is the rise of the nuns a manifestation of secularity? Yes, but so is Oprah, so is eat, pray, love, so are all of our kinds of alternative spiritualities, which, you know, you don't, you don't run into many people who say, I'm a naturalist, I'm not spiritual. Right? Some, usually, usually if you run into people like that, you know, I, I, well, I I don't want to generalize, but many cases, the atheists that I encounter are actually kids who had really bad renditions of Christianity in their life. And the God that they don't believe in, I would not believe in either. Like, if that's the only God you know, you should absolutely be an atheist. Jesus is an atheist with respect to that God. Um, but for the most part, you don't, you don't actually, re- what's, what's the trope we hear? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, okay? All, and again, you can be frustrated with that, you can you know, say how mushy that is or whatever, or you can actually hear in that a certain uh, refusal to relinquish some kind of enchantment, right? And, and I, I just think there's a way to construe that as an opportunity, an opening. Let me close, let me give you a picture as a as a closing. Well, I'll talk a picture. In the heart of Manhattan, in the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, is a, a remarkable painting by El Greco called The Vision of St. John. If you're next time you're in New York, go find it. It's completed around 1614, which is unbelievable to me because when you when you come up against this thing, you swear it's an early 20th century painting. It's just so like modernist in some ways okay and it's a the painting is actually a portrayal of the opening of the fifth seal in revelation chapter six so there are these martyrs who are bore faithful witness who are then given white robes while john looks it seems heavenward towards the epiphany of the lamp and the colors of the, the the reason I, I wish we could see it is the colors are just remarkable it's like another reality Now, here's the thing. If you ever get to see it, look look it up when you get back. Uh, The painting as we view it now, which is actually still quite large, but the painting as we view it now is actually a fragment. Uh, At some point in the late 1800s, when somebody was improving it, they actually cut off 175 centimeters from the top of the painting. For for Americans, that's about five feet. So, in the name of improvement the scene is truncated almost in half. And so in what seems a fitting parable of modernity, the exultant arms of John the Revelator reach upward to nothing. There's there's nothing up there. Well, interestingly, what it does is it reaches up to the top of the frame. And the martyrs who seem to be receiving gifts receive them from nowhere and no one all of them seem to be looking for something that's no longer there. What if our secularist projects of improvement and disenchantment have actually severed us from what makes for flourishing? Some, of course, I know, some are going to rail against myths of what lies beyond the frame. But friends, I want you to realize and be open to the fact that more people than you might realize are actually looking at that and asking up there? What are they looking at? Our calling in a secular age is probably less a matter of sort of securing our status and more a matter of bearing witness to what's missing, especially to those who are feeling the claustrophobia of that frame. And I think we might be surprised by the response. Thanks very much.